for another episode of the Dr. Bo Show. I'm Dr. Bo Beard, and on today's episode, we have Andrew Brown. So Andrew is a fellow Birmingham man, Birmingham, Birmingham, uh, he's from Birmingham, uh, and he owns Embody Manual Movement Therapy. He is a rolfer, he is a movement, movement practitioner, uh, he is a hunter, uh, He's a writer. He's a lot of things. Uh, like most people have in the show, I think I like people that are a bit like me. They're into a lot of stuff. Uh, but we get into a lot. Uh, he goes into a deep dive on explaining to me uh, what got him into rolfing, what rolfing is, some of the new concepts uh, about rolfing, or some of the new thought processes. Uh, we dive into his brush with uh, Guillain-Barré disease or syndrome and how that got him into MoveNat. And then we kind of go off on some some kind of wild and crazy tangents. It was overall really fun. I know that you guys are gonna enjoy it. Well, the, this, uh, yeah, the first thing I, even though I'm gonna give people the rundown of your fancy extensive bio, just kind of tell me a little bit about you. Like I, again, for anybody that's tuning into this that doesn't know Andrew and myself, we've followed each other on social media. We both have a lot of similar interests. We are both in the Birmingham area but we've never officially met. We still haven't because of COVID weirdness and doing this over Zoom. So tell me a little bit about yourself, man. Well, I'm from Birmingham. I was born in Nashville, uh, moved here when I was very young and uh, you know, grew up in a suburban neighborhood down by where your clinic is somewhere between Valleydale 119, that area when there was nothing down there. <laughs> and uh, you know, didn't, didn't do a whole lot of outdoor stuff as a kid. I mean, we would I love to go to the ocean and my, my grandparents lived on a little lake. And so I got a lot of outdoor time there. Um, but sometime in my teenage years, I got much more into outdoor activity, hiking, backpacking, that type of thing. Uh, played a lot of sports as a kid, um, you know, suffered some damage from that. Uh, played football, baseball, basketball up until about the middle of high school. And uh, one of the things that led to the career that I have is I was raised by two physical therapists and uh, I was, we won't, hold, we won't hold that against you, man. Don't worry about it. <laughs> right. And uh, I was born with like, you know, turned in feet really bad. And, um, you know, my mother said that if, if uh, she were to look at me in a line of other kids, even when I was really little, I'd be the kid that was like this. <laughs> You know, so super slouchy uh, naturally, and also, you know, pretty hyperkyphotic, hyperlordotic. It's a feature of mine. Um, somewhat runs in my family, but I think I'm the worst case. Mm -hmm. So, you know, played a lot of sports growing up, uh, suffered some damage from that. Nothing major, but just, you know, by the time I was an older teenager, you know, my chronic postural problems and the stuff I had done and all the heavy weight training and all of that. Um, you know, I started having some back pain. I just wasn't able to sit up very easily. Uh, you know, my parents were always reminding me that type of thing. Mm -hmm. So this is what led me to then find, you know, Rolfing Structural Integration and start that career because I was a really good candidate for the work and I got a lot of change mm -hmm. from it. I, f I found out about it at the right time. Which is typically how it goes, right? Like we're fixing ourselves and then we end up, you know, making something of it. Yeah, exactly. So I found this this thing called Rolfing. And while I was, you know, in school, finishing an undergraduate degree, went to Rolfing school, moved back here, started a practice. So 
would have been 2005, so about 15 years uh, doing rolfing. And then about five years ago, um, discovered Erwan LaCour's, you know, MoveNet method, the natural movement practice, and, you know, did certifications for that level one and two. And it's something that I incorporate in the work that I do. Um, and then, you know, I just have other things I get passionate about, like, um, you know, big into herbal medicine, uh, you know, done some Wim Hof stuff here and there, did some workshops mm -hmm. like that. Uh, did a lot of meditation, sitting meditation in my 20s, especially. So, you know, at that time I was doing a little bit of yoga. I've had a Qigong practice for maybe 15 years too. Um, but at that time in my 20s, did a lot of sitting meditation. So, um, yeah, I guess that kind of summarizes my different, you know, areas of interest, I guess. Well, and for anybody that doesn't know, you co-founded, uh, what is it, Embody Manual Movement Therapy? Yeah, that's right. So early in my uh, rolfing career, I got hooked up with Margaret Pittenger. I don't know. Do you know Margaret? I'm not familiar with her, no. Okay. So Margaret Pittenger, um, she's mostly retired right now. I mean, she's been retired. She's retired multiple times. She's been practicing, I don't know, 40 something years. Um, she's a physical therapist, but also a Feldenkrais practitioner. Mm -hmm. So she's been practicing Feldenkrais for, I think, 30 something years. And uh, early, when I was first starting my rolfing career, uh, well, okay. So I received my rolfing series from a man named Chuck Wetzel, who's been in a rolfer in Birmingham for a long time. When I started my career, he hooked me up with her and said, you know, she's doing a lot of work with stroke patients. They want a lot of manual therapy for these people. So I don't, he, he didn't have the ability to take on that workload. Mm -hmm. So he handed that to me. So I met her and did a lot of work with her. Um, saw a lot of, of cases that I probably would never have seen as a rolfing practitioner uh, from working with her. And then at some point we got the idea like, oh yeah, we want to get office space together and get some people together. And we we're maybe going to do some sort of somewhat stroke rehab focused clinic or so. She was using the Saboflex and doing all sorts of different things. And uh, that then kind of morphed into this other thing. So we picked up some other colleagues of ours like Renee Yerbys, uh, PT as well, does craniosacral therapy, uh, Becca Impello, yoga teacher, um, massage therapist, PT, uh, Jill Copeland, also a massage therapist, and then my wife, uh, who's a massage therapist and yoga teacher as well, who does specializes in manual lymphatic drainage. So we wind up just all getting together and being like, well, we might as well get office space together. We're not really forming a business together, but... Um, yeah, we all wanted to be under the same roof. So in 2012, we started forming that and we opened up in 2013 and we're we're still here. We had a classroom at one time that basically outgrew itself. So we let mm -hmm. our colleague Becca took it and ran with it and turned it into something bigger. So now we're just the manual movement therapy uh, clinic. Gotcha. Well, for, so there's a lot of clinicians and students in PT Cairo school that listen to this. So for anybody that obviously I think anybody in this realm has heard of Rolfing, but give a quick rundown. And then I want to kind of go over like maybe where people have misconceptions about it or where they get led astray and like really also like how you incorporate that in, with the other things that you do, but give me a quick rundown of how do you explain it to maybe the layperson? Yeah, that's, <laughs> That's a good question. It always comes out differently depending on who I'm talking mm -hmm. to. Because it's hard. It's so hard to explain. But um, so Rolfing's been around since the 1950s. The way the way it got its weird name 
is uh, I, a, a woman named Dr. Ida Rolf created the method. And she was actually a biochemist. She had done some research on connective tissue, but basically to make a long story short, she uh, learned that she had a natural skill uh, working with bodies, with tissue and injuries and things like that. She just had a natural skill. She also had a, 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 an unusually good ability to see body patterns, just naturally, structural patterns, the way these different structural patterns were related to each other, uh, things like that. And so she, she formed this method called, that she called structural integration. And that is technically the term. However, they couldn't trademark the term at the time. So it, it went by its nickname. They trademarked the, the nickname Rolfing. And uh, that's what became popular because she really became well-known when she started teaching at Esalen. Mm. She tried teaching medical professionals and doctors and things like that and realized that they didn't, um, they weren't interested in the holistic part of her method. So then she started teaching other types of people, wound up at Esalen, became famous at Esalen. But basically, um, she had done some research on connective tissue, but she was also uh, big into Andrew Andrew Taylor, Andrew Still, I forget the guy's name. Osteopath, yeah. Yeah, osteopath. And so as far as I know, the osteopathic community was the first group of people to um, manipulate fascia in particular. Mm-hmm. The mindset to do that and trying to figure out tactically or uh, tactically how to do that. And so she took that and ran with it and turned it into something else, which is uh, in Rolfing, we look at body structure. So we look at people in pretty minimal clothing, like underwear or short, Mm -hmm. whatever. And we're looking at at how they're aligned, like from the front, from the side, and looking at how they're moving and looking at how their body is organized around that central vertical line that is, uh, you know, it's not a thing, but it is a thing, right? We're, Mm -hmm. We're an organism relating to the gravity field. We're upright on two feet. And one way or another, all the weight segments are balanced around the central vertical line. Now, the the thing is, though, is that obviously we have a blueprint, some sort of blueprint for structural health as a species, but we've had a lot of deviation from that for lots of reasons, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, maybe the big picture is we're now domesticated humans dealing with all these different bone deformities and structural things we haven't quite dealt with before, but it's also, you know, injuries and um, stress and trauma and, you know, just the way we were formed in the womb, like Mm -hmm. like me, I came out with these structural patterns. So we're looking at how they're organized around a central vertical line. And then we're doing fascial techniques because the, you know, the fascia is what binds all the parts and pieces of that structure together. It is also somewhat of what Ida Rolf would call a plastic medium. Mm-hmm. Be manipulated and the body can change shape if you in particular are manipulating that type of tissue. Um, and then what we're doing is we're doing the work in, in a progressive series of sessions because we're trying to, we're not uh, focused on individual parts of the body. We're, we're trying to work with the whole thing to handle any local problem and also to give the person, try to maximize their structural um, health. Okay. So what we do is we look at the body, we do the work, we look again, we do more work. We're constantly tracking the structural changes that are happening. 
And, you know, for a lot of people, or for some people, at least maybe that's not the orientation because some people are really well aligned and can still have plenty of mobility issues or pain issues or things like that. So it's not always the central part, but it really is the defining feature of her work. And what made her famous was before and after photos. Mm-hmm. You can you could attend a lecture, Vida, and watch her, you know, take this body. And in one hour, she was she was a terror. I mean, she was a sweet, you know, mm-hmm. she was also a terror. She, you know, she would take you on a ride, a really intense journey of body work, but she was very skilled at doing that. It was very mm-hmm. skilled at doing that without re-traumatizing people and things like that. Um, and so what made her famous was that Rolfing is capable of, in some cases, dramatically, visibly changing the alignment of a person's body. We said two really kind of interesting things there that I think are good jump off points because, and you know, as well as I do, because we're, you know, we may do different things, but we're in the same field that it's become more popular to downplay the importance of posture. Right. And we, you know, pain neuroscience has come to the front and it's like, it doesn't matter, but you said, you know, talking about the central axis and alignment and stuff, you said it is a thing, but it isn't a thing. what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, it's not a, you, you can't go dissect it out. You know what I mean? And so it's there because we're relating to the gravity field. I mean, I guess you could say that central vertical, you know, energetic channel is a thing depending on what mm-hmm. perspective you're looking at it from. Um, but it's a little bit mysterious. You know, it's, it, it exists, uh, the body is organized around it, but you can't go, you know, anatomically find it. Right. When it, you know, the postural restoration Institute is big on obviously the asymmetries of the body and, you know, owing a lot of what they do to that. But then again, we, I like that thought process of like, you know, that archetypal schema, right? You don't like adhere to it. You know what you're kind of expecting, but you also hit on another good point that maybe the expectations are changing, whether we want to call that evolution or disevolution or, you know, functional adaptation that were our expectations change from the norm of, you know, maybe even a decade ago. The other part that you said in there of, you know, somebody could be quote unquote, you know, well aligned, but still have issues. That's a really, that's a really deep dive that we could do there. Right. Of like, well, what are we looking at there? Because, if, like you said, there's other things you're looking at, right? Like movement or, you know, I'm various things because you have more tools than just rolfing at your disposal. But explain to people what you mean by that too, that like, what are you going to do with somebody if the central theme of your main method is kind of, not that it's like thrown out the window, but it's like, what's next? If like somebody's well aligned dealing with pain, what what's the next step there? You mean if they come in and they're well aligned and they also have pain, or do you mean like you help straighten out their alignment, but they still have pain? I think either one, like what's that, where does that go from there? Yeah. So if somebody comes in and they're very well aligned, you just do the work like you normally would. Um, However, it's almost like you're using like, like the Rolfing series, the 10 series, the progressive series of sessions is like a loose template. Okay. And it's a loose template because bodies are so different. Mm -hmm. Somebody comes in and they're already so well aligned. It becomes less of a loose template. You know, you can run them through the process of rolfing. Nor usually it's going to help, you know, with their problems, even though their, their shape may not be shifting so much. 
Mm-hmm. Maybe they'll get more length, you know, through their body or, or something like that in, in a way that's maybe more subtle. Uh, and then if somebody um, is coming in and chronic, like somebody comes in, they've got chronic pain issues and they have structural problems. Mm-hmm. Those two things uh, can be related. They may not be related. You know, you may straighten out the position of the shoulders or whatever, and the pain is still a, a problem. Um, and so oftentimes, I guess, or maybe to make it more concrete, you know, for people. So if somebody, if you've seen somebody that's got like a forward head and a collapsed, you know, chest and rib cage, and they've got pain in their upper back, right? The, the head is like a 10 pound bowling ball. The further away you carry it from the center of your structure, the more strain it puts on your back. So let's say you have a very successful rolfing series and the person is upright, more upright, more aligned, whatnot, and they, they have changed. I, I don't know if I've ever seen that not relieve at least a good degree of that chronic pain. Mm-hmm. What it may require is just a lot more tissue work actually in that area. Mm-hmm. So we do, you know, kind of balance those two things of like, we don't want to chase pain around the body. We don't want to you know, focus on, oh, we're just going to dig on this place because it hurts. It's it's sort of the opposite of that. It's looking at the pattern that the conditions in the body that would create that local pattern. And that's well quoted from Ida Rolf, right? Where you think it is, it ain't like that's was kind of one of the original principles. So I'm a complete novice outside of like the fanciful quotes from Ida Rolf. So I'm really interested. Do, is there much talk from concepts of, you know, the the fascia being, you know, the medium through which you work and being this plastic container, but that being a neurocentric approach, especially the more we learn about fascia that like, that is the input, right? There's a plastic manual input, but that's the heavy neuro neurologic neurocentric approach. Is that kind of a concept within that? Yeah. 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 So, you know, back in Ida's day, our understanding compared to now about what fascia is, was pretty, uh, you know, primitive, I guess. Um, and actually, she, what, what she was doing is she, she developed the method before she ever tried to explain what she was doing. So she could see patterns well, and she could work well with her hands, and she could track changes, and she could transform a body. After that, she had to figure out, like, what, is, what am I even doing? Like, what is, you know, so this whole thing about, oh, the gravity field, and like, this was her way of trying to explain what she thought was happening uh, in a case like this. Um, at that time, they didn't, we didn't really understand that the fascia was the organ of proprioception in the body. It was heavily innervated by the nervous system and all this type of stuff. So that's, what's mostly talked about now, you know, in the Rolfing community, Ida had also had, you know, ideas like this thixotropy idea that, you know, that the fascia would go from like a gel or, or become more gel like to more solid when you worked on it, things like that. She had some ideas, mm-hmm. which didn't quite turn out to be exactly the way it is. Um, but yeah, I guess nowadays in the Rolfing community, the way it would be taught is you would have more education about what's, you know, what's really going on with the nervous system and yeah, the, the current level of knowledge. Cause we're always, you know, what we think today, five years from now, we'd be like, Oh, we were all idiots, but at least the whole thing is you're still making change. Right. And if the change is being made, you're always questioning what you do, even though you think you may know what's going on. Cause if you stop questioning, then you you're getting worse at what you do. Right. And the patient experience is decreased and, you know, we're not learning. Um, I don't know know if that answered your question, but yeah, it did. And it basically just showing the evolution of the body of evidence, right. That moves through it. And like any good science, I mean, it sounds like 
you know, Ida and I'm sure she had people around her, you know, most science, something happens or we see results or experiences and then we question why. Right. And I think that gets really beat up nowadays and, you know, manual conservative musculoskeletal care that like, you can't do that. There's no evidence. It's like, how do you think anything got developed? Nobody ever like went and researched something for 20 years and then started doing it. Like it's exact opposite. They probably did it for 20 years and then started like trying to fill in the gaps of knowledge. So long as whatever they were doing had a very low risk to reward ratio, right? Like (laughs) as long as that's present, the, the one other question I had again, being a novice is, and this may get into more of your movement side of things. Like what's the, what are the expectations around long lasting change? From rolfing so if we have a manual yeah. input and we see these changes i know you're seeing people like what do we expect long term that's a really good question um so you know Ida's approach was to try to make a more permanent change in the body and in order to make a more permanent you know f- from a manual therapy perspective that can be hard to do you know oftentimes it's like um you're, you're giving manual inputs to certain areas of the body to try to to help them but the body is still, the rest of the body is still the same. Mm-hmm. So the conditions that are creating that are still operating, right? So Ida's whole thing was, we're going to try to do the best job we can to make a more permanent change. And um, that's part of what the, the, the 10 series, Ida's 10 series of sessions was about. That was also a teaching tool as well. Um, and then my experience is that, like with, with Rolfing, is that there's a spectrum on which all of that exists. Mm-hmm. There are people that um, are so, and I think it's usually related to amount of stress is, was certainly a big factor. So like, just to give like a quintessential example, like I have a client who's traveling outside of the country regularly, has three kids, you know, it's just up to here with, with stuff. And, you know, they're not going to hold a lot of change between sessions. The 10 series might turn into 20 things like that versus somebody that has a lot of space in their life and can work with what's going on in the series of sessions is more likely to, to actually get a permanent change from that initial 10 series. Which actually goes back into one of the first things you touched on though, that the further we get away from being like a good human, right. Or our standard archetype, the more, I'm not going to say artificial inputs, but the more inputs we have to have from X like external sources. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So like, I'm a good, I'm a good example of someone who got permanent change. You know, it's, it's one of those two steps forward, one step back, you know, it's a process. You don't, it's not like you're going to maintain everything after the 10 series that you got from the 10 series, but I was definitely fundamentally changed. So like I went, for instance, I went um, for my first three rolfing sessions and then went home for some reason to visit my parents. I was still living in Birmingham, but I hadn't mm seen them since the beginning of the series went home and my mother was like oh my gosh like what is going on like i cannot believe that this has had this you know she's a pt and she's been studying me trying to tell me to sit up straight and you know doing what she could you know Mm -hmm. but she was was shocked like she could see that i was walking around moving differently posturing myself differently and i wasn't doing anything you weren't, it wasn't a conscious level action. I mean, maybe a little bit, but you know, there's, there's a limitation to the amount that I could, you know, do. And that range of being able to be upright and comfortable had dramatically increased. Hmm. 
you know, by the end of the 10 series, I, I felt different. I felt different in my body. And I don't think I've ever been the same since then. So a lot of times what I'll tell people is, you know, I think most people are never really quite the same. Like if you've been through the whole rolfing process, mm-hmm. you're probably never going to quite be the same as you were before. That's pretty common, unless there's just so much external stuff that's uh, countering it, you know, mm-hmm. that you're, but, you know, everything exists on a spectrum. Some people will get a lot of change that maintains itself over a long period of time. Some people will lose a lot of it quickly. You know, I guess there's a lot of factors. What's interesting. And I mean, in our practice style, I mean, we, you know, we're chiropractors and we obviously, I think people know us as this, you know, movement centric company, but the, the honest truth is we're far better manual therapists than you know, I think people would let on, like, that's what we hang our hat on. Like if you, my mentor is like, you know, if the president of the United States, you know, came to your office tomorrow, depending on which president was, what I wouldn't help him or not, that's a different question. But, um, and he's like, Hey, you need to, I need, you know, motion in my CT junction. Could you just blow a CT junction up, give him the best adjustment ever. And then on the back end of that, it's great rehab to help like maintain that. Mm -hmm. So where, Tell me the story about your kind of brush with Guillaume Barr and how that got you into MoveNet and then how you meld that with your manual therapy practice. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's see, in 2013, um, my rolfing practice. So, I, you know, I guess I'd been practicing for eight years full time, but it was really rocking and rolling there in, in 2013. And so I was booked up like a couple months in advance. And um had a lot of pressure to keep going. And, you know, it's like I had, I had reached the limit and was exceeding it. Like I was, mm. I was really pushing myself to, I didn't want to lose that momentum. You know, it's like I had finally come to what I thought was a great position to be in. Right? And so uh, I did that for about seven months and I got really sick at the end of, uh, or at the beginning of February. So I said, well, okay. I Normally, if you know, most of the time, if I get sick, I just get sick and I'm down for a day or two or whatever, and then I'm done. And this was kind of weird, you know, like I had this respiratory thing going on, but I wasn't really sick. And so I kept working, um, you know, worked through a really crazy week of, you know, probably 22, 90 minute rolfing sessions or whatever. By that next weekend, I was looking pretty bad. I was like, oh gosh, you know, I'm going to have to take some time off. You know, this isn't good. But by that following Monday, so about a week into it, I felt better again. So I gave a whole nother grueling week of sessions. And, uh, you know, I should have just taken some time off, but I had a lot of pressure. Like if I was to cancel on people, like rescheduling them was a nightmare. And they were in the middle of a rolfing series and stuff like that. And I wasn't that sick. And I told my clients, like, I've got something going on, but don't feel that sick. This is pre-COVID where nobody's like, oh my God. Yeah. 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 This would never fly right now. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, I worked through that whole next week. And then by Friday afternoon, you know, my, my colleague Renee came in and was like, you're looking really pale right now. Like there's something going on. And she was like, you know, there's something going on in your like throat area. You know, she has anyway, long, long story short. Um, I I woke up on Saturday. I was very sick. I woke up on Sunday. I was not sick at all. Mm. And I went to my brother's birthday party and I'm sitting there eating, you know, lunch at birthday. And I'm like, why is my hand not working right? 
you know, it was like I was starting to lose strength in my hands. I, I didn't tell anybody because I was like, I don't want to freak anybody out. <laughs> so I go home and I'm like, something's wrong. So I go out to take a walk and it was like my legs weren't working well. So basically the short, you know, I don't know, autoimmune stuff does run in my family. So I'm probably a little predisposed to that. But, you know, basically what happens is there's a handful of respiratory viruses that have been identified. They're capable of, <clears throat> excuse me, they're capable of uh, burying themselves into your nerve lining. If I've got this story straight, I can't remember it exactly. Mm -hmm. They bury themselves into your nerve lining, they cloak themselves, they mimic your nerve lining. And then I, I, I guess it's, they consider it an autoimmune syndrome. Your body goes about destroying its own nervous system. However, it also does not respond to typical autoimmune therapies by dampening down the mm -hmm. immune system. So they're not really sure exactly what it was. But in my, what it felt like to me was that this was the logical conclusion to it in a, in a, in a way to what, what I had done. And the, the irony, the irony was that six months before when I started getting really busy, I went to the Rolf Institute's annual meeting and there was like a, you know, Taoist practitioner guy, you know, I don't know, 17th generation, something or other, who was the keynote speaker. So he lived in Colorado and a bunch of the faculty there were like students of his or something. So he gives the keynote, the, the keynote speech in his or talk and his whole thing was be really careful with the amount of this that you do because you can damage yourself. And he had this story about like, you know, the type of manual therapy and energetic, you know, chi healing stuff he did when he first moved to the U.S. and he way overdid it and he started getting like liver cancer and like, you know, stuff like that. And that was his message. And I was like, oh, OK, yeah, yeah, I'll have to keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did listen to that. Um, so anyway, once I started falling apart, I was like, oh, you're right. Okay, so so in theory, if I had just allowed my immune system to um, do its job and hadn't been overtaxing myself, that virus probably wouldn't have buried itself into my system like that. So then what happened was um, I had this very uh, downhill spiral from there where I lost my almost my ability to walk like you could stand me up. And I could kind of walk, but the breeze would blow me over, you know, type of thing. And wow. couldn't use my hands and was totally collapsed. Like I could like shovel my food in like that a little bit, you know, I was in severe nerve pain uh, for about a month and then it more or less disappeared, which is really strange. So basically with Guillain-Barre, it's a short-lived syndrome, you know, it was like two weeks, but you then have to deal with the damage that's done. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it can kill people. It can paralyze your respiratory system. For some people, it paralyzes your face first. For me, it was all peripheral. And by far, the most damage I had was in my hands. Which, which is, is where I was, yeah. A, a postulation, right? Like, not to get super woo-woo, but the intelligence of your body is pretty damn high. And, you know, some people don't want to touch on that. But it's interesting that you're a manual therapist and your body shuts you down by taking away you know, your tools of the trade. And I don't think, I think we're really good medically at labeling things. Right. Mm -hmm. And then we're, you know, even like pathology, like, Oh, you have a cervical disc herniation. Sure. You do. <laughs> uh, but like, I think our body, so it's just kind of interesting to see like how that plays out. I mean, yeah, it's terrible, but I'm, I'm sure you see that stuff all the time in your practice that you're like, Oh, the environment dictated this. And your body was like, dude, I'm done. Right. And like yeah. the way it manifests kind of makes sense sometimes. Yeah. 
yeah, it made a lot of sense to me on like different levels. I was like, oh gosh. So anyway, what what wound up happening was, yeah, I lost a, it's a, the majority of my ability to move my body. It never t- it never touched my trunk. Mm-hmm. I always felt very confident. I never really felt threatened by it for some strange reason. Like I just knew, you know, I read about it. I read a lot about it. I knew that the younger you are, the more likely you are to recover everything. The healthier you are, the more likely you are to regenerate things. So I thought, well, you know, I'm I'm young, I'm fairly healthy, like I, I can do this. So I was pretty confident about it, but and and largely was confident too because it never reached mm-hmm. the point, so to speak. Um and then what wound up happening was I, I didn't work for about six months. When I went back to work, I was just barely able to do rolfing sessions. Like I was improvising, you know, I would be like pointing to the, to the bench, you know, I'd be like, Oh, let's go, you know, over here at the bench and my, my hand would be, you know, looking all funny. I was just, I was just winging it, but I was able to do some rolfing work. Um, and really after I started working about six months later, I really started hitting a stride. And another six months later, I was much more like myself. And then another year later, I was almost completely done. But in about six months, that first six months is when I just had a lot of time to, to just research things, do what I wanted to do because I wasn't working. And that's when I came across uh, Erwan LaCour's uh, material and whatnot. And it was very inspiring because I had just lost my ability to move. Mm-hmm. So I had a very different appreciation for what it is to move your body. Um, and... Uh, I'm trying to think of, I mean, I could keep going with this part of the story. I don't, I don't know. Well, I think it's, again, it's, it's kismet, right? Like you research, you could have found MoveNet. Maybe it was really popular at that time, which, you know, it, it did get popularized around that time, but, you know, things speak to us at the times that they need to. Um, so with MoveNet, for people that aren't familiar with that, Erwan is kind of a maverick, ish, right? This kind of idea has been around, but he took it to another level, right? Living it and then starting to teach it. So how do you incorporate that, uh, A, in your life now? And then how do you incorporate that in your client's lives or their treatment? Yeah. So, um, I'll back up just a little bit. So, uh, while I was recovering from Guillain-Barre, um, you know, I had this kind of choice to make. It was like, well, you know, if I know my body knows that it needs to regenerate this tissue but I'm afraid to just lay around and let it do its job, you know, because if you don't use it, you lose it, all that type of stuff. So I thought I've got to strike some balance between giving my body the time and space it needs to be unencumbered, to do the healing process, but also stimulate it Mm -hmm. it as much as I can. So I did things like started swimming. I would go to trails and I would just walk as, you know, 50 yards. And then the next time I'd go a little further and the next time I go up hills, the next time I'd climb over a rock, the next time I would hang from a tree. So I was already doing this stuff before I uh, found Erwan's work, which is what was really strange because I re- I recognized that the environment was the stimulus. Mm-hmm. I could make use of that environment to move in all these different dynamic ways that would stimulate me. It's much better than sitting at home trying to figure out what sort of movement you know, <laughs> program to do or whatever. Um, so... I became interested in the method because it became this thing that I took took on and was doing myself. So I started working with the material that I could get a hold of. I then scheduled myself to do the certification like another six months later. 
So I had this goal. So I did a lot of training then. But in the back of my mind, I knew like, well, this is something that's going to be for my personal practice. But really, once I grasped the, you know, the scalable, deconstructed aspects of the method, the accessibility to all levels of people with all levels of difficulties, I recognized that there were tools in there that I wanted to be able to incorporate in my rolfing practice. So like, you know, and I know you see all the same stuff. You see all these Mm -hmm. issues that people have and you know it's related to their lifestyle. You know that there's some simple things that people could do um, or maybe some inspiration that they need to start moving again. And so this idea that, oh, you know, I could teach my elderly clients how to better maintain their balance by this little two by four. Mm -hmm. on the floor, like this thing that they can do in their own house that's simple or not even the two by four, but something that's, you know, simple and safe and can be, uh, you know, made more and more complex depending on how far they want to take it. Mm -hmm. Just little things like that, you know, really let me know like, okay, this is, I want to, I want to pursue the certification and not just do it personally. So then, you know, with my Rolfing clients, I'm sure you see a lot of people that are like, as an example, are real tight up underneath the arms, Mm -hmm. like, you know, just teaching people how to do basic hanging practices, like with their feet on the floor, you know, grasping something overhead, softening the knees, opening, trying to keep the ribs down, opening up those areas, just little things like that were a great assistance to the things that I was trying to do in the rolfing work that I was doing with them anyway. And, you know, proprioceptive um, or proprioception is certainly a, a, a factor in all of this with people. And, um, you know, being able to give them some tools for more proprioceptive stimulation, giving them an idea of how they would start from scratch with the movement practice, do it sustainably, mm-hmm. do it slowly, do it gently. All those things were, were very enticing. And so that's largely what I do now. You know, I've taught classes and I've taught workshops and I do private lessons that are more fitness oriented, but my main angle is that I really just want to give the people who I work with the most in my rolfing practice, some simple, simple tools. One, two interesting things there, you know, obviously as we become more aware of the environment dictating outcomes, right? It used to be very, honestly, very clinician centric right? Like, Hey, bring me people. And I do stuff to them. And now we're like, Oh, like if we address the environment, like our job becomes non-reliance, right? Like empowering Mm -hmm. people. But what I really liked is I think a lot of people in our industry that would look at Irwan's work would be like, like, I'm not going to take my client out on a log and like, you know, crawl like a bear. And you're like, what the scalability, like two by four on the ground or Hey, get barefoot or sit on the ground instead of a chair or those are what are more accessible, but also more necessary because what are you going to get? You're going to get more touches with that, more time. You know, it's, yeah, it's, we know the benefits of getting out in nature and doing all those things. And like, that's great. That may not be totally feasible enough to make change. Right. Yeah. And this is, you know, what's been such a hard translation to make to people is, you know, oh, I, I got this movement certification. I'd like to show you some things. Oh, what is it? Oh, <laughs> uh, no, I'm not going to be climbing trees. I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not going to be balancing on rails. It's like, no, that's not. I know it's hard to understand, but that's really not what what um, what we're going to be doing at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's related to that. That's just a more full expression of what we're going to do. We're going to break it down into smaller 
uh, pieces. But yeah, that idea of just, you know, even the, the languaging of like, you know, look, so the, the reality is we live in a world of furniture. Mm-hmm. And because of that, these are the changes that have happened to our knees and our ankles and our hips and our spine and all these things from not ever coming all the way down and getting um, that sort of uh, extra range of motion and usable, you know, ranges of motion from that. And so I want to teach you some basic things that you can do on the ground, like kneeling and squatting and sitting and stuff like that, that you can incorporate into like daily things, like even watching television. Mm-hmm. It's like that, that those things to me were the most appealing because, you know, Erwan has this thing about, we just need to work with people where they are. And you know? well, let's take that and make that practical. So you put, I always ask people like, Hey, what are you interested in? You, you kind of said, well, I'm, one of the things I'd be looking for is an indoor facility to do move net in. And I, I just thought that was ironic, right? Like we're, we're in a stage of human, yeah. Yeah. you know, development or optimization where it's like, okay, I'm going to try to find a facility to do, it doesn't have to be outdoor movement, but you know, the highest level of that would be. And then it's like, here we are again, like trying to accommodate humans, which is fine because you have to make the accessibility, the important thing. And then I think that, I always tell people we're trying to get like energy catalyzation, right? If I get you, you may come to my office and expect manual therapy, but if you eat better, you feel better, you move more often. And actually that's the most important thing. It's not, you know, me working on your hip or whatever it is. And I think that's where you're going with this, that like, you know, rolfing is a heavy input, but then you may need a little more, right. To like maintain this on your own. And then there's levels to that maintenance. And then, you know, there it's just never ends. It honestly never ends. Like that's a human, right? You're, we're breaking down from the time we're born and hopefully that's, you know, we're offsetting a lot of that. Um, so what would you, I'm just kind of playing around here. If you had an indoor facility, like what, what do you see that looking like? Like what would you want to do with clients that would be different from maybe what they're doing in a daily movement practice or exercise practice? Yeah. So, you know, I know that a lot of people are very habituated to gyms. Like I, I'm not a gym person. I don't, I don't go to gyms or anything like that. Um, but I know that that's where, you know, a lot of people like to have a dedicated space that's social, you know, the social thing can be important. Um, but, you know, or, or Juan makes a big deal about tr- help, uh, working with people in semi-controlled environments or controlled environments, like a, like a gym. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what I would like to do is like, you know, have a gym space where I could have a reliable class schedule. Cause you know, mostly what I've done so far are outdoor classes. They're kind of like intermediate level because they're outdoor, you know, in terms of like taking into account everybody, they're relatively intermediate. So mm-hmm. either playground or the woods, you know, things like that. Um, but what I'd like to do is have the indoor space because it's a much more controlled environment. It's an environment where there are a lot of different types of people that come to it. And, um, you know, a lot of people really enjoy having a regular schedule, regularly scheduled class um, at a place that they like where there are other people reliably there, you know, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, you just have to use, utilize different equipment, you know, so open floor space, some two by fours, maybe some boxes, there's some bars, some maybe slightly awkward objects to lift and carry like sandbags or medicine balls or something like that. Um, just to add something to like the schedule of a gym. Mm-hmm. You know, I know, I know functional fitness stuff is you know relatively much more popular than it used to be. Um, and then, you know, just wanting to add this natural movement 
uh, even the indoor approach, you know, to, to a gym schedule, I think would be great, but I just have not, not found uh, where to do that. Now yeah. I have, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say the irony is always just like a waterfall for me. Cause it's like, it's funny that we we try to get people to do things that look like human work or like things we should just do normally, but we have to like coach people on it, schedule them. You know, like it's kind of like we're kids, we're big kids and we're, we don't want to play and we're forcing people to play. Right. Yeah. Like, no, you need to go outside. Like it's like your parents when you're being kind of an ass and they're like, go outside and like stay out there. And it's like, dude, you may have to go inside. <laughs> um, we need you to do some stuff that isn't like three sets of 10. And you also, you know, like beating a tire with a sledgehammer, like people get paid minimum wage to do that on railroad. Like, and we're, we see gyms, like, you know, people are paying money to do it. Like, it's just, it kind of baffles you when you think about the fitness industry sometimes like, man, this is where we're at. All right. Like, but you know, that's, that's the human condition right there. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I had this idea, you know, like, like uh, what I really wanted to do was be able to hand somebody something so they take it on and use it on their own. And then I realized that, you know, only a small percentage of people are really minded like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to take this home. I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to make it into something I do regularly. I think that's why, you know, like the gym and the schedule and all that, all that mm-hmm. um, works out for people pretty well. But yeah, like back to what you were saying, you know, it's, I guess another reason why I really wanted to incorporate th- this into my practice was the, re- the, the recognizing that what I was seeing in my rolfing practice is largely dictated by lifestyle. And if there were just some simple, even simple lifestyle changes that were made, they may not have ever gotten to be mm-hmm. like this. They may not have the level of chronic pain that they do and all of that. So feeling like, a, oh, I don't know, a mechanic who's bailing people out you know, without handing them something. So yeah, I mean, that was orientation. Yeah. Yeah, The thought process of, if you use the car mechanic analogy, fixing their car, but then taking away the manual and making sure they never know how to do anything on their own. Like that's kind of what happened for a long time, man. And I I think we're all becoming wise to that. And, you know, the good ones are again, non-reliance, like what can I do for you to get you to adopt this stuff? But outside of the clinician advice part, like what would be one or two, three things that maybe aren't talked about a whole lot. It's become very popular to talk about. And maybe it is some of these things, you know, breathing or whatever, like what would be a couple things that you're like, if you just did this, you like, you knock down like 50 dominoes, or if you just did this, a lot of other things get easier. Like what do you find yourself telling clients, you know, most often, or you, you know, those biggest uh, linchpin things. Yeah, that's a good, I mean, you know, I guess in the broadest sense, just telling people, you know, if you get more volume of movement in your average day and more movement variability, that that in and of itself, you know, we could break that down, but that that in and of itself would go a long way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess maybe maybe the two or three things would be interact with the ground more, you know, to help to maintain uh, the health of those tissues and those joints by interacting with the ground more. Don't let your whole life go away from you before you realize that you can't even get up and down. Mm-hmm. You know, I see that a lot, you know, like ask, asking clients, like, can you, can you get up and down? Off the ground? Oh no. You know, I, I avoid that. I don't like doing that. You know? And I'm like, no. <laughs> like, yeah. 
(laughs) This is not not good. Like you're a human being. You need to be able to get up and down off the ground. And I know that those, those furniture is very comfortable and it works for you, but you don't want this to get out of, you know, past you Mm. to where you then realize that you've lost a capability that's normal and natural and something that you can maintain over your whole life with some simple changes, like just Mm -hmm. interacting with the ground more. So maybe that, uh, Basic hanging practices are probably up on that list for lengthening out the body from the other end. Mm-hmm. You know, like we've got this, this shoulder girdle that is incredibly dynamic and it's made to do incredibly dynamic motions and things. And we, 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 this, and we, we do this and we operate in this plane and we don't, you know, we don't do a lot. Of, you know, we're talking about our average middle-aged mm-hmm. clients who don't, don't do a lot of these things. Um, you know, maybe that we, we give that group hell all the time, but the youth generation now 15 and under is maybe worse, to be honest with you, you expect a 60 year old nowadays to not have great overhead mobility, but I bet when they were 15, they had it. So what do we think the 15 year old today is going to look like when they're 60, if they don't start doing some of the stuff, that's kind of the scary thing. Yeah, that is the scary thing because, you know, a lot of people built a foundation as a kid in previous generations, you built a foundation as a kid running around outside. You didn't have to play sports or anything. You just were moving like a kid. And, you know, maybe we, we stop, we behave differently once we became adults or whatever, but you at least had a foundation that you could lose. Mm -hmm. So now this whole thing about the children being so incredibly sedentary, never fully developing not only their strength and conditioning and movement programming, the, the, you know, motor learning, um, but also, yeah, also just the, the, the neurological development has got to be different, you know? And so I worry about that a lot too. I tell a lot of patients that, you know, you're, they come in pretty significant shoulder pain. You're confident that you're going to, you know, you know what's going on. Hey, this is manual or uh, conservatively managed, but they're like, do I need an MRI? Do I need surgery? Do I need, and I'm like, one of the best shoulder surgeon, surgeons in the U.S. is in Minnesota, and he prescribes all of his patients a hanging protocol for almost six to eight weeks prior to doing surgery and knocks out 80% of the patients. Now, certain people aren't going to be able to do it, and guess where they are? Directly in surgery, usually. Right. But that's yeah. extremely smart because, I mean, he that's non-specific rehab, and it, like you said, it's going back to something that's kind of – you know, embedded in our, our movement DNA, if you want to say it like that. So I, I, I mean, give kudos to that guy, but I try to like get people aware, like, you know, like you said, interacting with the ground, like hanging from something could eliminate a surgery, right. Yeah. Getting down on the ground could eliminate a life altering pelvic fracture and, you know, in your later years, like these simple things that are adoptions of, you know, not discipline, just habituation make all the difference because it has a ripple effects. So I think those are two awesome ones and easy to do, you know, like I would say it's impossible for you not, I mean, you can hang off your door frame, right. Keep your feet on the ground and all sorts of stuff. Like you can make this stuff happen. Um, Yeah. And, and you can make these things happen wherever you are. Yeah. Yeah. And I like Katie Bowman talks a lot about, you know, everybody's hot and heavy on foam rolling and all this stuff. But like, if you interact with the ground, the pressure gradients that change and the things that you wouldn't have to do that we think are like, Oh, I got to go do this after I run. Like if you slept on a harder surface and sat on the ground, (laughs) those tissues may be a little more, you know, manageable and a little uh, less sensitive. So it's just kind of interesting. 
Yeah. And then, you know, this stuff relates, you know, back, back to me. So, you know, the, like I described the body that I came into the world with, I'm also, you know, a tight wiry body type mm-hmm. did all that weight training when I was younger. So I put a lot of compressive force, you know, through my spinal column that was somewhat compromised anyway. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I guess I was able to recognize like these, these fairly simple things could have made a big difference even for me. Yeah. Now, because I moved into, you know, specialized sports. That's what I was spending most of my time doing, running around in Nike tennis shoes, you know, uh, on flat surfaces, chasing balls and stuff mm-hmm. like that. You know, sure, I was a more dynamic movement than a young person probably mostly today. But at the same time, if somebody had just educated me a little better, you know, how much better would I have been able to throw a baseball if I had some basic other things I was doing, you know? Amen to that, man. That's our whole mantra here, right? Like making you a better human doesn't necessarily make you a better baseball player, but I, I almost guarantee you by working on being a human, your baseball does get better if you keep working on being a baseball player. But if you just are a baseball player, you will only, you'll hit a peak and probably pretty early. And then that plateau is going to be a sharp climb. But if you, I mean, that's periodized training, right? We think, I get good at a sport, but I have an off season. I'm a human. I get good at a sport. I just did a podcast on that today of, you know, health isn't, or fitness isn't health, but we tend to think it is nowadays. We're like, if I'm fit, I'm healthy. It's like, eh, maybe not, right? You could be, you know, but that it, those aren't a one-to-one right there. Yeah. And you may be doing a lot of fitness and wearing really deep grooves into your body with a lot of linear movements. And then the next thing you know, something blows out in your spine. It's like, how, how mobile are you then? Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, what I see all, all day. Yeah. Lots of spinal injuries, post-surgeries, all that type of stuff. So, well, you've talked about, you know, length in the spine. So I'm heavy into dynamic neuromuscular stabilization and, you know, from a develop, developmental kinesiology standpoint, we would call it uprighting, right? The ability to create long axis distraction through the spine. And that's what most people lose with honestly now within the first eight years of life right? Kids don't have the ability to maintain uprighting. And then that's all we're working on is like, can you create intra-abdominal pressure and, you know, stabilize against gravity well, and then move around that stabilization. And I, I mean, it's such basic stuff that just gets lost in like this, like little time frame, And then you can see how a couple of decades later, like we blame my back injury on lifting up the laundry. It's like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that was just the match on the gasoline, man. Like that wasn't, that wasn't the injury. The final straw is you bent over to pick that thing up. Like, yeah, that didn't do it. Yeah. yeah. It final straw. But our education system around the human body and injury for the general public hasn't been of that nature. You know, it's been like injury treatment, injury treatment. It's like lifestyle could lead to injury. And then you're in a perpetual cycle of treatment is kind of where we have been at for a while. Yeah. And, you know, in my, another thing that, that really inspired me about, you know, MoveNet was that I had largely, um, you know, not been doing any sort of real strength training through my twenties because I did, I had all that, that stuff happen with weight training and sports. And, you know, I got into outdoor activities and, you know, stuff like that, but I was always cautious with loading up my body too much with Mm -hmm. weight. And so what this enabled me to do is I saw like, okay, this is so dynamic that um, I now know what avenue of strength training I'm going to pursue. 
because I don't see myself overly um, stressing these parts of my body that are vulnerable. It's going to help lengthen me out. It's going to help improve my structure just because of how dynamic the, and well-rounded the system is. Um, so all that has been very helpful for me. And re- I mean, I, you know, I'm a lot stronger than I was before Guillain-Barre. Mm-hmm. I still have, uh, you know, some, I have, the, the only damage that I have left is just little intrinsic function on my right hand, mm-hmm. entirely on my right hand. But, uh, oh, another, another just side note on the story. So as a kid, you know, I'd be like this in photos sometimes. <laughs> and be- for anybody that's listening, it kind of <laughs> looks like Ron Burgundy, but like just dead puppet hands in front of him. So I actually think that I might've had some incomplete neurological development of my periphery of, of my hands in particular. And then and- it got re kind of ignited. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I, you know, we bring this statistic up a lot in the clinic that 30% of children have some sort of central coordination disorder, right? Or they're, they're off track, their movements delayed, they're going to have a slight neurologic, you know, derivation, you know, walking, crawling vision. Um, That's really what we specialize in. But what people don't realize is those things follow you through life, you know, and we could, I think we can look at all those things a lot of different ways, right? Like somebody comes in with scoliosis to me, the first thing I'm thinking is some sort of ophthalmological issue, right? Cause that's what the evidence would say. But like, just because I may have an input to the eyes, you may have an input through the fascial system. We may both get there sometimes one's faster than the other, but it's also the goal is what the patient. So it's like all of these things have to dictate it. And something that you said two times, two different ways was, how Ida Rolf was able to basically put the hammer down in a non-threatening way, but also for you getting into move that, it basically took the fear avoidance away of kind of loading strategies, right. And being able to move, you're like, that's important to people. And that's really what both of us are doing, like giving people permission to move and, you know, operate within their environment without pain and, you know, kind of freedom. Um, two questions that I ask, I haven't asked these in a while. I was going to say, I ask everybody. I haven't asked in a while, but I'm going to ask you. Um, What's one thing we'll keep, I mean, you can keep it in your career field if you want, but what's one thing that you thought was true for a long time that maybe recently or not so recently you're like, Oh God, I was totally wrong. Or I've completely flipped my thinking. Like, is there anything that stands out like that? Hmm. Yeah. Um, God, let me think about that. And everybody always has to think about it. I always tell people take as much time as you want. I'll edit out your thinking time. (laughs) You know, I don't know why, but hunting popped into my mind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, during this time um, when I was sick and researching stuff and found MoveNet, you know, I was also just learning more about, well, I got into the rewilding, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, stuff that you can get a hold of. And that that idea that, um, you know, we have auto domesticated ourselves and we're, we're dealing with the changes from that process and that there are features of us as a species that go all the way back through our history that we don't, we don't do anymore. Like, or that most of us don't do anymore, like hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a very soft hearted guy naturally, you know, it, it does not, doesn't come supernaturally for me to be like, oh, I'm just going to go, 
you know, take out this animal and bring it home and, and all that type of stuff. I, I had a fairly traumatic hunting experience. I was by myself, but uh, as a young kid hunting a squirrel. And um, so I, I had a BB gun behind my grandfather's house. I chased, you know, I had this instinct, like I was nine years mm -hmm. old. I'm going to chase this thing down and kill it. Well, I shot it a bunch of times with BBs. And then it fell out of a tree and got stuck in brambles like this. But <laughs> so now I could see what I had done. Yeah. I peppered it with BBs until it died. And then all of a sudden completely broke down and was like crying and bawling. And, you know, all I needed was, you know, some older, some adults, you know, male figure, especially to come to me and be like, you know, I know that this is traumatic, but, you know, this is, this is the way life on, on earth is. Mm -hmm. Or was. Yeah. It was. Yeah. But that there's death tied up in all the food that you're eating, even the plant food that you eat when you sit down to eat. And uh, so, you know, I, I cried and cried and took the squirrel to put him in the lake and said, I'm never going to go hunting again. I was like on my way to back to the house crying, saying I'm never going to go hunting again. And, you know, I was vegetarian a few times in my 20s and I had all these ideas of, you know, very basic ideas about what I thought health was in my early 20s. And, um, you know, I, I guess I, I came to terms with coming down to earth in a way when I was going through this process while I was sick, I wrapped my head around the idea, like I'm a human being mm -hmm. live on this earth. Like I'm a hunt. I, I, that's what I, that's what I, that's where I come from. And not only that, but what I thought I was doing ethically, um, or, or like being a vegetarian, things like that turned out not to quite be what I thought it was like. It didn't, it didn't work for me health wise, mm -hmm. but it also, I, I learned that reality was much more complicated and that there was death behind all the food that I was eating. And that maybe the best thing, the most humane thing that I could do was go out in the woods and take an animal mm -hmm. because I know exactly how that animal lived. I know exactly how that animal died. I'm going to be the one who does it. Um, this is sustainable, this, you know, all those things. And so I, I guess that would be an example of one thing that I've made a total, you know, it's like my wife was like, you're going to do what? <laughs> like she, That's not, she didn't associate me as the guy who's going to go out with firearms and go kill things. Right? <laughs> so, so I made a pretty, pretty big 180 on that. It was just like, once I wrapped my head around it, I was like, all right, well, now I know what I'm going to do. And, you know, the first time I killed a deer um, was traumatic. And it was magical, you know, like mm -hmm. I had, I had a little like dream vision of the deer the night before when I shot the deer, uh, I kind of had like tunnel vision mm -hmm. with the deer for a minute and I could tell when it died. And, you know, I was, uh, it was traumatic and I brought it home and I, I do all my own butchering. Mm -hmm. So I brought it home. I butchered this whole thing. And then I fed it to my family. And when I fed it to my family, all the stars aligned. And I was like, this is why I did what I did. And I'm going to continue to do this as long as I'm alive. Mm -hmm. Because there was something very satisfying about that entire process, even though it was also upsetting. Well, and, you know, there's this cognitive dissonance, obviously, that exists of, you know, people, and I'm not, you know, dismantling anybody's thought process, you know, if you're vegan or vegetarian, that, you know, this isn't how humans evolved. It's pretty well established that we wouldn't be where we are if we didn't cook food, right? Like that's, I, I don't even think that's like question now, like we wouldn't have evolved without that process. So I think when people say, 
eh, I'm going to go ahead and go against that. It's like, you may be okay, but there's a lot of people that to be really healthy, A, that's an important part. B, to tap, you know, tap into this like ethnocentric, like part of being a human, like where'd you come from? Like to do this for a long time, like you got these urges and like, I think you were scratching an itch that started when you were nine, when you, you know, put that venison on the table that was like, man, whew, load up. Like now I know why I shot that squirrel, right. Is yeah. weird. And you know, cool as that seems like that was built in, like in every kid, like, you know, we got in trouble for shooting sparrows. Like I'm not going to eat a sparrow. My parents have something. Like, Don't do that. You're not going to eat it. Like, I know that seems like a thing to do, but like all little kids go through that. So let's, let's hit the flip side of this. So I, I love that answer by the way, because uh, I'll touch on this for a second. My wife was a vegetarian for a little over a year with the same thought process. She said, if I can't kill something, I won't eat it. Mm-hmm. And she had six months where she's like, I feel amazing. And then all of a sudden she had this turn. She's like, I just, I feel kind of like, just not depressed, but like my energy and my mood's not right. And then literally she ate meat and she was like, holy cow. That was my experience too. And, you know, I think, you know, that could be a variety of reasons. Um, But then (laughs) that kind of opened the gamut for me. I've been a hunter my whole life, but she's like, Hey, why don't you go get some, you know, deer and Turkey and do that. So I was like, Oh, okay. Um, so kind of a, a similar experience there, but the flip side question to that first one is, again, it could be, you could pull this from any realm. Uh, what's something you think to be true that you're like, man, I know it is, but there's no real evidence out there. There's nothing that's supporting that thing. There's, you know, what I don't, could be manual therapy, could be movement, could be health overall, whatever. Like, is there anything that you're just like, damn, if I could like go be a PhD in this, I'd want to figure this thing out. That's a big question. Uh, yeah, I got some thinkers here at the end, man. These are good ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I get a PhD in. Uh, you know, I guess I have this sort of, you know, conviction that we're not just biological, physical beings, but I can't produce any science. You know, I, I, you know, people can talk all the time about their experiences. I've had plenty of experiences that I would say confirms that, but I can't show it to you in metrics, you know, so that's, that's one of those sort of existential things we, we uh, naturally ponder as as Mm -hmm. I feel like I have a pretty, you know, good conviction about, but I can't, you know, I can't show you any evidence about it. Um, you know, if I could get a PhD in something, I would love to travel and learn the herbal medicine traditions of the world mm-hmm. in, in a, the loose sense of a PhD. Yeah. Like you were saying, we're saying being way over specialized in one thing. That's what a PhD is. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I would love to go study Amazonian plant medicine, like the whole gamut of it. And mm-hmm. also, especially Taoist, uh, you know, tonic herbal medicine, something that I have uh, been interested in any of you just, I just resonate with the system because, you know, I learned Qigong from a Taoist teacher and it was presented to me in this sort of philosophical and also biological organ oriented. So if anyone doesn't know what we're talking about, Qigong is kind of like, you know, Chinese yoga sort of, so to speak, but it's different. You know, it's, it's almost like doing acupressure on yourself in a lot of ways, you know, you're stimulating organs in different ways and you're building energy in different places. And it's also a, you know, mind, body, breath, movement thing too. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but, you know, it was presented to me in, in, in terms of like the broader Taoist understanding of the body. And the herbal tradition is, is basically operating off of that same system. So I just have always been uh, interested in Chinese medicine in that way. So I mm-hmm. think that's probably what I would wind up doing. Not so interested in, in like giving acupuncture. I guess, <laughs> you know, sticking my elbows in people is enough. You know, I don't need to be also be needling. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, the herbal side, I guess I just have, I just, um, you know, have so much interest in herbal medicine. I guess that'd probably be it. Well, that's my wife laughed at me talking about, um, I've also, I've always had a massive interest in like Native American, you know, medical practices and medicine men practices and things like that. But I ordered a book, um, what was it? The unexplained, unexplained lives of Aboriginal mystics or something. She's like, what is this? It's a pretty, it's an out there book. Um, but like, you know, just things like that interest me that, you know, obviously, Eastern medicine has become more and more popular. I mean, it's in hospital systems. You know, I do acupuncture. Uh, that's more popular because obviously the results speak themselves, but there's something right there that we could say, there's no proof, right? There's no science that explains meridians or actually how acupuncture works, a lot of theories. But then you think about these things, you know, hunting, uh, you know, herbal medicines that follow cultures, uh, whatever these spiritual practices, all these things that follow through human time. I'm interested in those things that have been around for thousands of years that sometimes we're just like, that's trash. Like, no, that's not a thing. And you're like, what are you talking about? Like Aborigines are one of the oldest. And I just saw an article, the oldest human culture. And we don't like give merit to these things that we're just like, Oh, we like, we're going to hook you up to East M and do our, like, it's like, man, we're, we get a little too, you know, I heard somebody the other day say the new religion now is science, you know, or is, you know, going to be science. And it's like, yeah, it's got its place, but like science is there to try to, un- to explain the unexplained. And I think sometimes the more merit you give to the unexplained, the better you operate. Cause you just kind of give yourself freedom to be like, okay, we don't know, but like this gets results. This works. This is what I'm following. Again, if that risk reward ratio is kind of in place. Yeah. I mean, the world is much bigger than science. You know? 100%. Yeah. yeah. We like, we like to explain stuff as humans, right? We got a, we like to think we got a big brain, but it's not that big. Um, so we need easy explanations to understand it easier better. Yeah. Um, well, dude, we could talk for hours on multiples of these topics, but, um, I know you're kind of just a stud in a lot of these areas and want to, I really wanted to learn more about rolfing. Um, I mean, I, been around it and I'd like to do some personally. I'm just a big fan of anything I, you know, that's in the realm of my, you know, career, I guess, or, you know, colleagues, like I always want to experience that stuff. So maybe I'll head your way sometime. Well, um, yeah, you know, obviously chiropractic work is good for me. And, uh, um, you know, the other thing too, is that, you know, like in, in Colorado, especially where the school is a lot of chiropractors and rolfers work together on mm-hmm. patients and stuff like that. And, you know, obviously for school, especially for something like scoliosis, mm-hmm. really put the two to get married, the two together and uh, create something that you can't with either one on their, on their own and all that. So um, yeah, we should link up and. Absolutely, man. Yeah. Well, any last pieces of wisdom, any, uh, do you have any, like, do you tell, do you pick, tell a client something at the end of every visit, just like some stage wisdom? You're like, Hey, leave. If you're going to, it's like the fortune cookie of Andrew Brown. Here you go. You got anything for us? I don't know if I have a fortune cookie, but I have this one thing in the back of my my mind that I had thought about in relation to the question of 
human health currently, which is, um, you know, and this is not necessarily what I would tell my clients when they were leaving, but the thing I was thinking about today was the importance of peak experiences or ecstatic experiences. So, you know, people get those in a lot of different ways. Maybe it's, you know, completing the Moab 240 or whatever, you know, that gets the person to that incredible level of ecstatic experience. But, you know, humans have made traditions and rituals and time for enabling ourselves to have peak sort of ecstatic experiences with a lot of different methods, you know, whether it's ecstatic dance or trance-inducing drumming or plant medicines or, you know, all these different things. And I just, the thing I, I think about sometimes is, you know, if somebody's lacking peak experiences entirely, you know, whether it's just that you went on this incredible hike and you you saw this beautiful place that you never knew existed or whatever, like th this past weekend, um, it was my wife's birthday. We went to the Sipsi, we backpacked into the big tree. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're, if you're up on the ridges in the Sipsi wilderness, you know, you see where the post logging situation and then you peek over those little ridges and you're like, oh, my gosh, like this is a totally different place. It's like this is the way the world was before our European ancestors came here and logged the entire eastern United States. Right. And um, just that little peak experience of like, wow, the energy, you know, the, the energy, whatever you want to call it, the the beauty of this place is inspiring and it, it helps me to recognize like my place in the planet. So to mm -hmm. speak. just kind of overwhelmed with the water falling and the trees there, you know, those sort of old growth environments present a different type of nature to people. I think that's a lot of times why we're so disconnected. You know, somebody goes for a hike in the Eastern U S and it's like, Oh, there's a privet <laughs> area and there's some planted loblolly pine and there's, you know, it just, people don't know what they're looking at. Yeah. But what they're looking at is this heavily damaged environment that's regenerating, but is has been significantly altered. And then, you know, to just have that little peak experiences of like, oh, wow, this is a powerful place. Mm -hmm. um, so whatever the peak experiences are for people, I think that, you know, a lot of times just having a peak experience can, can get, can inspire people for years or lifetimes. And, you know, the way we are now, you know, sort of like further and further and further isolating ourselves um, and, you know, cutting ourselves off from, I mean, like our European ancestors seemed to only have one altered state of consciousness that they were interested in when they came over here, which was getting drunk, right? We yeah. were really good at getting drunk. Not that there's something wrong inherently with alcohol or getting drunk, but that's not a particularly expanded state of mind. Yeah, it's technically a myopic one, right? You shut out more than you, you know, take in there. Yeah. And so just, I don't know, exploring the world more, having more peak experiences, you know, I, I think uh, the world would be a lot better place in a way if we had those. And I think every time we have something like that, you know, it's kind of like we're helping to cleanse this realm that we're in of all this mm -hmm. suffering and disconnection. And so I guess that would be my negative wisdom. Well, there's two things to touch on before I let you go here. A, I think you're a psychic because the only question I didn't touch on was, I'll read it verbatim, why do you think such dissonance or disconnect exists? So kudos. <laughs> um, and then I don't know who gives the advice, but I've talked about this a lot that 
you know, if you want to live kind of an inspired life to like harken back to your childhood and think about the feeling or the emotion that you, you enjoyed the most, right. For some people that's excitement for some people that's, you know, happiness or contentment or whatever. For me, it's all like this. You're in a place or you're doing something. You're just like, I can't like, you know, all means you can't even really conceptualize what's going on. Right. You're just like, this is like beyond me. There's not enough. I agree with you. There's not enough of that going on. And one of the best ways to do that is get your butt in nature and not necessarily human contrived nature, which is great, but there's a lot more out there and it's hard. I mean, that's dwindling first of all, but that's, that's so important because you can have, again, you can, you know, use a plant medicine. You can go to a, you know, you can go to a rave, you can have uh, peak ecstatic experiences, but having one in a setting that was completely unattached from anything that was contrived by a human, I think gives you a whole different perspective on like, Ooh, I'm, I'm small and it changed your perspective. And I think that's extremely important in this very human centric, like we're the most important thing. Yeah. And in that whole, you know, that thing where you, when you're out there, if you have, you know, sort of a little bit of a magical experience and then you realize that you're in this kind of dialogue in this mysterious way with this place, you know, whether it's the deer that shows up at this particular moment or, or whatever, or the bird that lands and doesn't seem to want to leave you or, you know, just little stuff like that, you know, it becomes mysterious. You're like, oh, wow. You know, you're inspired by the mystery of like, what is that? Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Is it something? Is it not? I don't know. But I feel something. I feel connected to some, to this place somehow, you know, even if it's threat, right. That's something that a lot of people are realizing with like hunting. They want to go to like, you know, create the podcast that was released today with my friend Matt Ward. Like, you know, they're going to the back country of BC and, you know, hearing wolves at night. And he's like, it's the craziest feeling, but it's also like, Ooh, I like that. And it's yeah. like, that's part of our human thing for generations and like i don't know i mean yeah people that live in you know dangerous neighborhoods or whatever but when's the last time you really felt threatened going to sleep at night probably been a while you know yeah and and i had a magical experience with a cougar or mountain lion at chiha at night by myself really <laughs> one time yeah i was back in uh i guess it was like 2007 i had a friend um who had warned me that that uh, mountain lions had made a resurgence and that they were in, in Chia and like six months later told me what to do. And six months later, I went to go see a meteor shower. I was going to go camp the night and watch the meteor shower by myself up at basically the bald rock area where mm-hmm. you know, camp. And uh, I was up there looking around for a campsite. And sure enough, there was this crouched mountain lion that was staring me down and it was it was frightening, but at the same time, it was it was inspiring. You know, mm-hmm. it's actually the first. It was, actually this was kind of uh, another one of those things along the way that I didn't quite understand at the time. But I then realized something about my humanness in that moment because all I had was this little knife, and it's like I'm a human being. I'm a tool bearing species. Uh, I don't have claws. I don't have fangs, but I'm supposed to have some kind of weaponry to deal with, with something like this. And I don't. And why don't I, and why am I not comfortable with, uh, mm-hmm. that idea and stuff like that. And, um, 
yeah, for whatever reason, you know, even that threatening experience, I, I hold that as one of, you know, on a list of like important experiences that I've had and it was inspiring. So. That's awesome. And, you know, it's impossible to get on Facebook and, you know, ostracize the mountain lion, you know, from the safety of your couch. So, you know, we got, yeah. we got a little bit too much of that going on. So <laughs> yeah, no doubt. No doubt. <laughs> well, Hey man, um, it was so good talking to you and I hate, Hey, we need to meet in person uh, sometime soon. And we got lots more to talk about, but I'm going to link up uh, some of your social media stuff. Definitely uh, put a link into your guys' uh, practice so people can find out more about you if they're interested. And uh, maybe we'll pick a, a topic. Um, I wanted to get an introduction to you. Maybe we'll pick a topic and have you back on sometime soon and we can kind of dive into something deep. But I really appreciate your time. Appreciate being on here. And uh, yeah, good talking to you, man. Yeah, you too, man. Thank you, Bo. I really appreciate the opportunity. As always, I appreciate you guys listening and watching. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, I'd really appreciate if you left us a five-star review, write a little something, let us know what you'd like to hear. Uh, you can always ask questions I'm on social media at Dr. Bo Beard, Dr. Bo Beard at gmail.com. And we'll see you guys next time.